Amen. Great to see you all this morning. Welcome again. Just want to extend that welcome to Cornerstone Church. My name is Ben, one of the leaders here. It's my privilege to, to open up God's Word with you. And as, we, um, as Bonnie had shared earlier on, we are currently walking through a series in the book of Exodus. So if you've got your Bibles, jump to Exodus chapter 32. That's where we're going to be this morning. Now, if, you, if this may be the first time you step into a church building, there should be a Bible floating around in the pew in front of you. So go ahead and grab that. And, and just to say as well, that's our gift to you. Um, so feel free to take that. So turn to chap, chapter 32, um, and we're going to read from verse 1. But whilst you go there, let me, let me just recap the story um, so far again. God has delivered a people out of slavery. He's displayed his power through, over all things through signs and wonders, And then what God does is he he raised up a leader called Moses to lead God's people out of Egypt and on through the wilderness. And in the midst of grumbling and complaining amongst God's people, God provided for them time and time again. We saw that he brought water from a rock and he sent bread from heaven and he spoke to his people out out of the mountain and he gave them the laws and the commandments And he said, this is how you are to live. This is how you are going to flourish as you walk on as my people in the land. And then what God does is is, is God established a a covenant relationship with his people. And he did that by the sealing of blood. And, and, And what he wanted is for his people to know that as they continue on in the land, that they would have a relationship with God that would be based on grace. It'd be based on mercy. It'd be based on forgiveness. And then, what he, and then what we see is that, is that God calls Moses up to the mountain, and he gives Moses the instructions to build a tabernacle, the tent, the dwelling place where God will live um, amongst his people as they journey on in, through the land. And, and what we've seen as we've walked through the book of Exodus, that the God is a God who is holy. He's holy. He's perfect in every way. He's set apart from his creation. So there's nothing in his creation that can be compared to him. Nothing can come close to capturing his goodness, his perfection, his beauty, his righteousness. And and what we've seen is that because of God's holiness, humanity cannot be in the presence as they are. Humanity cannot be in the presence of a holy God because of Sin, And so we see God giving the instructions for the tabernacle and included with the instructions for how they're going to build this tabernacle. God also gives them instructions for, for the priesthood to how, how God's people are going to enter God's presence rightly and how they're going to worship God rightly. And so in the midst of that, there would have to be sacrifices for sin. And there would be washings that would have had to be done as a symbol of the cleansing for those who were to go into the presence of God. And so what we've seen as we've walked through the book of Exodus is that God is a God who keeps stepping towards. He keeps stepping towards. He's a God of love. He's a God of mercy. He's a God of grace. And God, what we've seen is God stops at nothing in order to bring people into his presence. He stops at nothing. He wants his people to enjoy his presence, to live and flourish in his presence. And what we see in this passage In the book of Exodus, this famous passage is that God begins to show his people something. He begins to show people the reality of their sin. And we're going to walk through this in sections, but I'm going to start by praying because we are going to need God's help in order for us to understand 
and to feel the weight of what is going on in this passage. So join with me now as we come before God in prayer. Father, we thank you that you are a God who keeps stepping towards us. We thank you that you're a God of mercy, you are a God of grace, you are a God full of forgiveness. And Lord, we pray this morning that as we come to your word, as we come to a passage that that we might be quite familiar with, we come to a passage that, that actually says a lot about us in the midst of you displaying yourself, Lord, we pray by your spirit, open our eyes to see who you are. Help us to see who you are. And Lord, we pray that in the midst of this morning, you would transform our hearts so that we would know you more, we would love you more, and we would glorify you more. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Read with me from chapter 32, verses 1 to 6. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Now, if you remember, what we saw uh, uh, towards the end of the chapter, uh, chapter 24 is that the Israelites were, wait, were told to wait at the foot of the mountain, right? So Moses had gone up the mountain, and he left God's people under the supervision of Aaron and the elders. And so they were to the people to wait until Moses came back before going on in the land, into the land that God had promised. And they could see the fire at the top of the mountain. And we see that at the end of the, uh, chapter 24. Moses goes up, and there, and there is devouring, fat, devour, get my words right, devouring fire at the top of the mountain. And so they, they looked to the mountain, and they saw that God's presence had not left. They could see that. They could see that. And, and, and then what, what do we read in verse 1 of chapter 32? When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, chaos erupted. Paraphrase of the next few verses. <laughs> Chaos erupted. And so Israel had been promised a land of blessing and abundance that God was leading them into through the hand of Moses. And the moment that they could no longer see the one thing that was tangible to them in that moment, they doubted God's word of promise and began to take things into their own hands. See, sin starts with unbelief. Sin starts with unbelief. It starts with not believing God's word, what God says, what God promises. God's people failed to believe God, and therefore they failed to trust him when things didn't look from their perspective like they were going to happen. Sin starts with unbelief, and the very next thing the Israelites do is they disobey the first and second commandments, and I want to say arguably the third. 
Sin starts with unbelief, and unbelief leads to disobedience. So if we remember back to chapter, chapter 20, God says to his people, uh, in, in the midst of giving him the commandments and the laws of how they are to live before a holy God and how they're to enjoy living in God's presence, they, God says to them, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no gods before me. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or is in the water under the earth. And Israel fail to believe God and trust in his word and his promises. And so they do the very thing that God commands them not to do. What do they do? They worship and serve the gods of the nations around them. They go to Aaron and they say, up, make us gods who will go before us. See, sin starts with unbelief, but unbelief always leads to disobedience. Now, we remember Israel were slaves in Egypt, right? And so one of the, um, one of the common beliefs in Egypt was that there were different deities behind the things that they hoped for, right? And they valued in life. And so what they would do is that they would create images that represented these, these deities, and they, they would perform rituals before the images of these deities, which include sacrifices and include offerings as a way of attempting to win the favor of the deities so that they would get the blessings that they thought came from them. That was the kind of belief structure in the day. But what we see here is that in the midst of Israel's unbelief, they fell back into the cultural beliefs and practices in Egypt. And so they, they created, what they did, they created an image of God. And they, they knew that God had promised them blessings, right? They, they knew that. As they moved on in the land, they knew that God had promised blessings. But instead of waiting for Moses and waiting for God's provision before they carried on, they began to believe the lie that it was through going after these idols that they would be blessed. See, sin isn't simply disobedience and unbelief. It is those things. But what God wants his people to see is that their, that their sin means that their whole view of reality is distorted. So distorted that they took the good things that God had given them, which were a sign of his presence and provision, and they twisted them. They twisted them into something that was evil. They wanted something more tangible. They'd seen Moses had gone, and because Moses had gone, they wanted a replacement. And so they go to Aaron, and they make demands, and Aaron then directs them to gather the gold jewelry. They bring it to him. They throw it into the fire, and then craft and fashion it into a golden calf. Essentially, they attempt to recreate God's presence because they thought God's presence was all about the blessings. And that, for them, is what the golden calf represented but what is so striking about this scene is that it is the response of God's people their sin started in unbelief but it wasn't total unbelief they believed in the God who had saved them they'd seen that they'd seen they'd been delivered out of a place of slavery they'd seen God's hand of rescue but they wanted to worship him and follow him the way that they define that Read with me verses 4 to 6. He received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool, made a golden calf, and they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast 
to the Lord. Aaron dedicated a feast to the Lord. They created this golden calf, and then right in the midst of breaking God's commandments by worshiping something other than God, they then dedicate the whole thing to God, the God who had actually saved them. So, so Israel's sin was disobedience, but it was disobedience in the form of worship. Because of, because of their sin, they had a distorted view of God, which meant that, that they thought it was totally fine to go against the rules that God had given to worship him rightly, whilst still worshiping him and proclaiming his name. So what we see here is the total distortion that sin brings. Distortion of who God is. Distortion of the reality of what God had done. Distortion in using the good gifts that God had given. The gold that they had plundered as they, as they left the place of slavery. And they used these gifts to rebel against God himself. And so the Egyptians, they, they created images of the gods they wanted. Gods that they believed would give them the, the things that they longed for. And so, so what, we, what we see is that Israel creates this image of God that reveals what they really wanted. What they wanted in life, and therefore what they wanted for their God to be. See, in, in, in the time uh, that Israel were, were present, they, 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 bulls represented life. And strength and fertility and wealth. These, these are all the things that, that kind of, that I suppose a bull would provide in a lot of different ways. Um, and, and these actually are things that God had promised. So he'd promised these things to his people. And so the irony of this moment is, is that they substitute God, the creator of all things, who provides all these things, and they replace him with an image of an animal that walks around eating grass all day. They make sacrifices to this image in the hope that it provides what they long for, whilst at the same time they're lifting their hands up and praising God. See, as Christians, we can worship God all we like on a Sunday morning, but the question we should ask ourselves is, what am I worshiping in the week? What am I giving my affections to? What do I really hope for? When are there moments when I'm okay giving myself to things that I think provide me with what I want and I crave, whilst at the same time I'm happy naming the name of Jesus as the giver of all things? What we see here is disobedience, the disobedience that sin is and the distortion that sin brings but what we see in the following verses is how God in his mercy and grace responds to his people in their sin to help them see the reality of their sin so that they run from their sin and to him instead of continuing on in their sin. God is so gracious. God is so patient with us. And so as the story unfolds that we're going to unpack a little bit here, we see, we see a few things. And, and, and the first one that we see is the danger, the danger of sin. Read verses 7 to 20 with me. And the Lord said to Moses, go down for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They've turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. 
They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, that in order that I may make a great nation of you. But Moses implored the Lord his God. He said, oh Lord, why, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. Then Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, tablets that were written on both sides, on the front and on the back, they were written. The tablets were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, there is a noise of war in the camp. But he said, it is not the sound of shouting for victory or the sound of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing that I hear. And as soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot. And he threw the tablets out of his hand and broke them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf that they had made and burnt it with fire and ground it to powder and scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink it. See, the Israelites had created this image of God, right, in the shape of a calf. But what's interesting is that most, most of the gods in Egypt were actually bulls rather than calves. And now, we, so, we, so Israel had, had, had seen God speak to them out of the fire and out of the smoke, out of the cloud and the lighting. We've seen that. And so, and so they, had, they, basically, they had a clear sense that God was a powerful God, right? They had a clear sense of that. And they'd been given the commandments and the laws of how to live, but they knew that if they didn't live by them, they would experience God's judgment. They knew, the people knew that they would experience death, that sin deserved death. But in creating this calf, there there is a sense whereby the people of Israel, they create an image of God where all the blessings of life are represented. But what they do is they remove the sense of authority or judgment or wrath. Essentially, they create a God in their heads that contains all the things that they want and removes anything that has implications on them for how they ought to live. I don't know about you, but that might sound familiar. I think, I think we think of many beliefs about God where, where we, can even, we can open the Bible up and we can choose all the great things that we see about God, but we disregard anything that we think gets in the way of what we think is freedom. And that's what was happening here. See, Moses, Moses is with the Lord. We see, we see that. He's, he's with the Lord at the time of all of this happening. He's up in the mountain, and he gets, and what happens is he gets a front row seat into the response of God as the people rebel at the foot of the mountain. So you look at verse 8. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I have commanded them. And then we see in verse 10, now therefore leave me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and that I may consume them. 
See, God sees that they have turned quickly away from God's commands, and his response is burning anger against sin, against their sin. And I think this is the part where we kind of, it seems as though Moses is kind of trying to persuade God not to let his anger out on his people. I think we, we can kind of read that and think, Moses is the good guy, God's the bad guy. But, 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 but what we have to understand is that God, God is showing his people something through this mediator who is Moses. But he's also showing Moses some things at the same time. Moses is up in the mountain, and God wants Moses to see that the danger that sin is before a holy God. Why does, he, why does Moses need to see that? Because Moses is going to be God's instrument to teach the people about God's anger against sin. So God is teaching Moses something here. And that's why Moses then goes down, burning with anger and breaking the tablets of the commandments. Moses is essentially he's reenacting what he saw. He's learning to take on the same responses that he sees in a good and a holy God. And he's teaching the people at the same time, which I think is an important principle there. As Christians, we, we, we want to follow God. We want to grow to be like God. And, and, and Mo, Moses is, is getting that. He's getting a front row. So he's getting the best uh, the way of, of learning about, about who God is. See, sin is disobedience, right? And disobedience before a holy God, it must be punished. Sin cannot be in the presence of a holy God. It has to be dealt with. If God is good, he has to punish all things that are evil. And if he didn't, he wouldn't be a just God. He wouldn't be a loving God. And so God in his mercy was showing his people the danger of their sin before him. That if they were to continually walk in sin, their relationship with God would be endangered. They would they would experience they, they could the, the threat of judgment will hang over God's people if they continually walk in sin. They had they had to know that. But we have what we have to do is we have to keep thinking back to, to the moment when God establishes covenant, right, with his people in chapter 24, where God warns the people of the consequence of their sin through the blood, but it's also in the blood that God wants to show his people that there will always be a way back. Forgiveness is possible with God. God wants to forgive. And so God, God wants, wants his people to know that as they continue on in the land. But God is also showing his people that to walk in sin is a dangerous game. God takes sin seriously. He will deal with it. He must. It must be punished. It must be punished. So not only do we see the danger that sin brings before God in that it angers him and that he must deal with it in judgment, which for us is death, we also see the damage of sin that it brings on the people. God says about the people, um, you see that in verse 9, I, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. You see, what God is saying to the people here is that you become what you worship. You become what you worship. As they made sacrifices to this idol, as they made offerings to this lifeless, motionless, powerless image, God says to his people, this is what you are becoming. 
And he says that in verse 7. He even says there in verse 7, they have corrupted themselves. They've corrupted themselves. As you give your life to something other than me, it will suck the life out of you. They were worshiping the image of a calf, and so quickly they became stiff-necked like a metal image of a stubborn calf before a holy God. And as Christians, the danger for us, as we worship God and we seek to follow him, we must see that anything we simultaneously give our lives to in the same way is killing us from within. Jesus himself says, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate one or he will love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and he'll despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. If our affections and longings land in the things of this world above God, it will be damaging us from within. And sometimes God in his mercy shows us this way more painfully than we like. See, Moses, he took the calf that they had made. He burnt it with fire. He ground it down into a powder, scattered it over the water, and made the people drink. I don't know about you, but that sounds horrendous, drinking water with, with solid gold pieces just scattered around there. I'm like, that's... Anyway. So God, God, wants, his people, so God wants his people to see, but he doesn't want his people just to see. He wants his people to feel the damage that their sin does to them. Why? So that they hate it. So that they see the idols of the day and they're not drawn to them, but they cringe at the sight of them. That is the mercy of God, can I just say. Sometimes God in his grace, he exposes the emptiness of of the idols we chase after and he does that because he wants us to see that the damage that they do within us when we go after them. Sometimes God tears things away from us, and, and the tear is painful, and it's in those moments that we wake up to realize how much hope we'd put in the wrong things. But sometimes we have good things. Sometimes God gives us good things, but we just can't seem to enjoy them as much as we thought. Or at times we just feel a dullness in life, even when we have the things that we want. And actually, what God is doing for us in those moments is helping us learn to embrace the true joy that comes from him and not the things that he gives us. That's the mercy of God. We become what we worship. Israel worshiped the golden calf, and so they became just like a calf. They became stiff-necked, which leads me to what we see next. The denial of sin. Look at verses 21 to 24. Moses goes to Aaron, the one who instigated this whole thing, and he came up. Aaron came up with a design for the golden calf, and, he, and Moses accuses Aaron to his face. So he calls out his sin. So read with me from 21 to 24. And Moses said to Aaron, "What did this people do to you that you have brought such a great sin upon them?" And Aaron said, let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people, that they are set on evil. For they said to me, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So I said to them, let any who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me, and I threw it into the fire, and out came this calf. 
And so what we see here is that disobedience is not just doing the wrong thing, but what God is showing his people and shows us through this passage this morning is that disobedience is also a heart posture towards God that says, I'm not guilty. I'm not guilty. And so we see three things that Aaron does here. The first one is this, he blames others. Let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people, that they are set on evil. Look, Moses, you know what they're like. They made me do it. Aaron is accused, and his first impulse is to blame, to blame others. See, when we're confronted with the guilt of our sin, one of the first things that we do is start thinking about the people around us in an attempt to justify our own sin. Now, I'm going to imagine here that Aaron had a bit of pressure on him. I think that there probably was a sense of that, that people gathered around him. But Moses' point here is that your sin is your own sin, so own it. Even if they did something to make you sin, you still sinned. You still sinned. And so we, we can say things like, well, well the, reason, the reason I'm not great with my relationships is because of my upbringing. Or the reason I struggle with bitterness and resentment is because of the way that I've been treated. Like, you don't know my past. You don't know what people have done to me. We can go there. Or the reason I got angry at the driver is because they suck at driving. That's probably me half the time, but there you go. So, but, but, but we blame others, don't we? And, and, but the, the, the second thing that Aaron does is that he blames the circumstances. Look at verse 22. Aaron says to Moses, you know the people that they're set on evil. Now, this, this is really interesting because, I, because what I think Aaron is also saying here is basically, Moses, you know how evil the people are. You, knew, you know what they're capable of, capable of. So what in the world were you doing up on that mountain that meant you took so long to come down? Aaron's basically saying, well, well, the reason we're in this mess is because you and God took so long reading out the instructions of the tabernacle. Why didn't God just send the blueprints on WhatsApp? Aaron blames the people. He blames Moses. He blames the circumstances. And it was because, it, because we had to wait so long, that's why we ended up doing what we did. We can often use, and we can even often use, difficult circumstances to justify our own sin. But Moses is saying, own your sin. Own your sin. And the third thing that Aaron does is that he blames God. Now, it's a little bit harder to see, I think. But so he says, so I said to them, let any, any who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me, and I threw it into the fire, and out came this calf. Now, I think in, in today's society, what we probably would do, right, is we'd take Aaron out of the classroom, we'd sit him down, we'd run sort of all, all sorts of tests, and we'd come to the conclusion that Aaron has selective memory disorder, right? <laughs> it's like, no, honestly, it's a real thing. Like, he remembers the gold and the people, but he doesn't remember throwing the gold into the fire and getting out the graving tool to carve this masterpiece of a golden calf. Like, he, he honestly just doesn't remember that. Now, and I'm not, I'm not knocking, some people may have a condition where they lose parts of their memory. I am not knocking that. But what's happening here is not that. That is not what's happening here. Aaron remembers what happened, but when Moses accuses him, he leaves out all the parts that show up as sin. But what's also interesting 
is that Aaron is at the same time blaming the fire. He's blaming creation itself. He knows that God spoke to Moses out of the fire, like he, like he knew that. He, knew, he knows that fire represented God's presence on the mountain. And so in this moment, Aaron is basically saying, the reason that I sin is because, God, you made me like this. See, in our moments of sin, when we fall to the idols around us and find ourselves in a mess of brokenness, the temptation is to blame others or to blame our circumstances, but ultimately, in doing that, what we really want to do is we want to blame God himself. God, you gave me this husband. God, you gave me these kids. God, if I was married, I wouldn't struggle with this lust. God, if you gave me a bigger salary, I wouldn't cheat on my tax returns. God, if you healed me, I wouldn't be so bitter. God, you made me like this, and that's the reason that I'm sinning. See, ultimately, our sin distorts our view of self to the point where we do nothing but deny our sin. See, God was beginning to show Israel something. They hadn't yet left slavery. Which leads me to the last thing we see God shows his people the deliverance from sin. Read with me verses 25 to 35. And when Moses saw that the people had broken loose, for Aaron had let them break loose the derision of their enemies, then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro, from gate to gate throughout the camp, and each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses, and that day about 3,000 men of the people fell. And Moses said, today you've been ordained for the service of the Lord, each one at the cost of his, own, of his son and of his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. The next day Moses said to the people, You have sinned a great sin, and now I will go up to the Lord, perhaps. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people have sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. (coughs) Apologies. But the Lord said to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now go, lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. Then the Lord sent a plague on the people because they made the calf, the one that Aaron made. Now what we have to understand here is that the moment we sin our lives are forfeit. Why? God has to deal with sin, and sin deserves death. And what happens here is that that God in his mercy provides a way back. See, the nation of Israel at this point, they stood under the judgment of God. They turned away from him. Their lives were forfeit. But through Moses, God gives them another opportunity 
to turn back to the Lord to stand by his side. So Moses, he directs the sons of Levi, who would, who would later go on to be the priesthood, to go about the camp and killing anyone who persisted in their sin, anyone who would not give up their idols, anyone who wouldn't leave their sin behind. And so 3,000 of the people fell. And see, what God is saying is that if we turn to him, if we take his side, we can have forgiveness and our lives will be saved from judgment. See, this moment in, in Israel's history pointed to a moment in our history where we see the disobedience of our sin, the distortion of our sin, the danger of our sin, the damage of our sin, all laid upon the one who didn't deny the sufferings that he didn't deserve. Jesus Christ is the Holy One of God. And that's what this was all pointed to, that he would come and he would willingly take on the judgment deserved for our sin, which is death. And he would take that upon himself. And, he walked, and it was him who walked willingly into the danger of God's wrath that was meant for our sin. That's what this moment was pointing to. It was him who took upon himself the damage that our sin causes. He wasn't just put to death. He was crucified, corrupted in his physical body in the worst possible way. If you want a picture of the damage that sin does to human beings, look at Jesus hanging on the cross. See, the biggest problem that the Israelites had in all their sin is that they were enslaved to it. And God was showing them in a patient, kind, and loving way that the way to be free was turning to God and to run to his side. The good news of the gospel is that in Christ we have deliverance, total deliverance from sin. And so if you haven't turned to Christ this morning, consider, consider what I'm saying. God wants us to turn to him. God wants you to turn to him. Now I want to just close by quickly uh, highlighting a few applications for us just from, from this passage. Um, the, first one, the first one is this. If we reread a passage like this, what is God saying to us today? I'm just going to highlight a few things. Now, the first one is this. We need to recognize the reality of our sin. As Christians, we are no longer at peace with sin. And God wants us to see that we are either killing sin or killing, or sin is killing us. Famous person said that once. We're to run from it and run to Christ. We can't claim the name of Christ and continue to walk in sin. Or we can't claim the name of Christ and continue to be indifferent to sin. That's what God was showing the Israelites. They were happy to worship the Lord and the idols they had created. That was the issue. That was the issue. They would worship God as well as the things around them. And the second thing uh, is that we, we need to own our sin and bring it to God. Aaron didn't own his sin. He blamed everything around him, but he didn't blame himself. He didn't honestly look at himself in the midst of his sin. He hid his sin. He denied his sin. He was stiff 
next. But what did the sons of Levi do? They ran to Moses. They ran to the Lord's side. They recognized that God was offering them mercy in the midst of their sin. God wants us to own our sin. He wants us to own our sin, confess our sin, and run to him. And the third thing is that we, we, we need to run from idols. We need to run from idols. See, the Israelites, they, they put off their ornaments. They recognized that they, they, they were the things that they used to create idols that took them right back to Egypt. And God was showing his people that idolatry was a genuine threat to them. It was a real threat to them. The things that were valued in their culture were a genuine threat to them. And as Christians, our, li- our life in Christ means we now flee idolatry. We run from it. And, and, I, and so, so we, 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 need, we need to run from idols. I think one of the, one of the biggest idols of our day is approval and acceptance. So much so that I think, and I'm not talking about Christians here, we're seeing a generation rise up that is so fearful of being rejected or canceled that they're willing to surrender their convictions. They're willing to surrender their convictions, and that is just a dangerous thing. But as followers of Jesus, we, we have the approval that the people around us crave for, right? We have that approval. The, the, the approval that people look for in others, we have the approval that is needed. What is that? God to look up upon us and say, you are my child. I love you and I'm for you. That is the approval. In Christ, we have God's approval. And as we embrace that reality, we can know true freedom. And we also need to run in run to Christ in moments of temptation, knowing that he provides a way of escape and he provides the strength to endure. We, they, they, that's what happened with the, the sons of Levi. What did they do? They ran to Moses, which meant they were safe. They were safe in the midst of the threat of God's judgment against sin. So God wants his people, he wants us to see that, that running to him will always, 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 always keep us from the danger of sin. He provides the way of escape, and if we run to him and trust him, he will enable us to endure, and can I say, even in the midst of total failure. That's good news this morning. I don't know about you. That's, that's good news. We need to, and, and, and finally, we, we need to know, and so finally, we need to know this. God redeems even our most sinful moments. See, what happens to the people of Israel after this dramatic scene that we read here? Um, we, we see this at the beginning of, of chapter 33. Now, just quickly read that with me, verses 1 to 6. The Lord said to Moses, depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt, to the land of, of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, To your offspring I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with, with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned, and no one put on his arm ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, say to the people of Israel, you are a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go, if for a single moment I should go up among you, I will consume you. So now take off your ornaments that I may know what to do with you. 
Therefore, the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onwards. What happens to the people of Israel after this scene? The people are left standing before the Lord, waiting to see what he will do next. Total vulnerability. And God says he can't go up with his people because they are stiff-necked. They're not ready for his presence. But what we see here is that as we see what God has done is that he has changed their understanding of their sin. And we see that because they got to a point of recognizing that to go on in their sin and not have the presence of God with them is a disastrous thing. They didn't believe that before. They wanted what God could give them, and they didn't care whether he would be there or not. And God in his grace shows them this because God knows that for them to have everything in this world and to not have him is, in fact, a horrendous thing. See, the Israelites, what they did is they took the good gifts that God gives them, which for them happened to be the ornaments of gold, the rings in their ears, and what did they do? They distorted them and twisted them for their own selfish desires. They twisted them into the evil that was the golden calf. And the Israelites, they've come now to learn how dangerous their idols can be. 3,000 people killed in one day. And so they've come to realize how dangerous their sin is. How much death and destruction and evil can come from idols because of sin. And so they throw them off. No one puts them on, it says. But if we, if we read on a little in Exodus, we see something stunning. See, Moses, uh, what we'll see is that Moses renews the covenant with Israel after it had been broken. And, the people, and what the people do is they begin to build the tabernacle from his instructions. And then it says this, and they came, everyone whose heart stirred him, and everyone whose spirit moved him, and brought the Lord's contribution to be used for the tent of meeting and for all its service. So they came, both men and women, all who have a willing heart, brought brooches and earrings and signet rings and armlets, all sorts of gold objects, every man dedicating an offering of gold to the Lord. The very things that had become vile in the sight of the Israelite, in the sight of the Israelites, became the very things that God would use in the building of His tabernacle, the building of His dwelling place. See, the brokenness of the the sin of the human heart is that we take the, the good things God gives and we twist them for evil. And so they took the ornaments, they took the gold rings, they took the jewelry, and they created an object of worship that was so wrong. And I think what they did is they probably stood in this place of hopelessness at this point. They weren't sure if, if what God was going to do next. They recognized that they probably recognized that maybe, maybe we've gone too far this time. Their sin, maybe they felt that it had gone too far. Their idols had taken over. But the good news, I want to say this this morning, the good news of the gospel is that God takes the evil that we make, the evil that we do, and you know what he does? He works it for good. That is what the cross is all about. God takes the sin, the evil, and the darkness of this world, and he turns it for good. Christ was crucified as our sin was laid upon him. But through his resurrection, there is a reversal so that those who put their faith in him receive the blessings 
of eternal life. Which means even in our most sinful moments, there is hope. God can use even our sin to work for good. But we have to turn to him. Let me pray. Father, we thank you that you are a God who is so, so gracious to us. And we thank you that even in the midst of our sin, even in those moments when we can be totally happy to carry on in sin, and yet we can even name the name of Jesus in the midst of that, Lord, we thank you in your mercy that you are delivering us. And we thank you that we see full deliverance through what Jesus did for us at the cross. So we praise you that you are a God who works even our sin for good. And we thank you that as we put our faith and our trust in Jesus, we can rest assured knowing that you are leading us more and more into the fullness of what it is to walk in freedom. So Lord, help us in that we pray. We pray that you would continue to shine a light on areas of our heart where, where we've lost sight of what is good and right. And Lord, help us to run to you in the midst of that. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going we're gonna to take communion now. And we have a tangible reminder of God's grace. We have the bread that was Jesus' body broken for us. We have the wine that was Jesus' blood poured out for us. For what? The forgiveness of sins. But what is so beautiful, I love the picture of the wine. The wine represents the blood. But wine is also a sign of joy. And that is just a beautiful, tangible picture for us that in this moment, as we reflect on our brokenness, on our sin, we acknowledge that, we own it, we bring it to the Lord, we know that through the blood of Christ, we are forgiven and we are restored. But the beauty of what is to come is that we are going to feast with God in eternity. And that is an incredible, incredible thing. So let's, as we, as we reflect, as we eat and drink together, let's celebrate. God is good. God is gracious. Let's eat and drink together.